what I've discovered is that the reoccurring problems on the job are really the reoccurring problems of our lives. And when we invest in the personal, we elevate the professional. Hey, everyone, and welcome to season five of Redefining HR. That was my good friend, Lori Rudiman. Lori is a fellow podcaster, author of the new book, Betting on You, that just came out this month, a prolific writer, consultant, speaker, uh, and really force of nature in the field of HR. If you work in this space, you probably know Lori, and you're about to get to know her even more after this episode. Probably most importantly and selfishly for me, Lori is a friend and uh, definitely somebody who uh, I've looked to in the space for years and have had the uh, pleasure of collaborating with on a range of projects and somebody who frankly has been instrumental to me in writing Redefining HR, which is also out this month. So we that's another thing we share, which is a very cool thing for both of us. Uh, I'm thrilled to be kicking off season five of the podcast with Lori. This is going to be an incredible season. We're going to have HR executives and leaders from Patagonia, Zoom, Built-in, Calm, Upwork, Procore Technology, and many other companies throughout this season. So I'm incredibly excited to bring those conversations to you. Uh, I'll also be sharing a excerpt from my Redefining HR book, which will be out in the U.S. on January 26th. So lots to cover. Let's kick it over to our sponsor and we'll dig right into the conversation with Lori. Redefining HR one podcast at a time. Support for the Redefining HR podcast comes from PIN. PIN is building the world's first employee-centric communications tool, enabling your employees to automatically receive helpful messages at key moments throughout their journey, from onboarding to promotions and everywhere in between. PIN helps companies battle communication overload and puts your employees in control over when and how they receive information. Go to PINHQ.com for more information. That's P-Y-N-H-Q.com. And reinvent employee communications for the distributed workplace. And now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Redefining HR Podcast. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I have a real treat of a guest for you. It's not just a guest, it is a friend, and it's always fun when I get to combine those things. Uh, Lori Rudiman and I go back years. I have long admired her voice and her work in the field, but now, more importantly, I'm able to bring her on and we're able to talk about an awesome new book that she wrote. So Lori is an author. She's an HR consultant. She is somebody who has um, certainly been a trailblazer in the space for years and somebody I have deep admiration for. So Lori, I'm going to turn it over to you after that intro. Why don't you uh, give the listeners a bit of background on you? Wow. Thanks so much, Lars. I feel like we're officially doing a podcast together. Woo. <laughs> this is the beginning of all good things. I That's love right. it. That's right. Everything um, starts with our podcast together. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the opportunity to come on today. You know, I am a writer, speaker, consultant, entrepreneur, and I do this work because I am a failed human resources lady. <laughs> I did that job for over a decade and ended my career at a global drug company, a little one called Pfizer. Yeah. They, yeah. They're not in the news at all lately. No, yeah, nothing no. going on with Pfizer. You know, the one thing Pfizer knows how to do is work. 
So when they say they've got a vaccine, I know that thing is effective because they put their heart and soul in it because they don't do anything else. So yeah, I used to work at Pfizer and it nearly killed me. And I've taken that anxiety and ennui and put it into another career trying to fix the world of work. And I indeed wrote a book all about um, career advice and lessons from my 25 years in the world of human resources. Crazy. Yeah. So, okay. So your book, Betting on You, it's out this month. Find it in bookstores uh, immediately. Like as soon as you, you can actually, you can multitask as you're listening. You can purchase the book uh, <laughs> while you're doing that. But uh, let's talk about the book. What is the core message of the book? Yeah. I have one fundamental belief uh, being 46 years old now, and that is we fix work by fixing ourselves. Mm. You know, for years I tried to buy systems and programs, you know, I'd listen to career advisors and buy workbooks. And not only that, I would listen to these HR professionals who tried to institute and implement systems and programs to fix work. And what I've discovered is that the reoccurring problems on the job are really the reoccurring problems of our lives. And when we invest in the personal, we elevate the professional. Mm. So those are the fundamental beliefs that are in the book. And I mean, I tell goofy stories about working in human resources, having clients who don't know anything, making mistakes, lots of embarrassing stories throughout the book. And I figure if I'm not radically authentic, and I don't talk about the slog that it is to figure out who you are and what you believe in, I'm never going to be able to get these ideas across. And believe me, Lars, I want to sell a two-by-two two quadrant to fix work, <laughs> but it doesn't work. I mean, the history of mankind shows us from Tony Robbins to your average thought leader today that there is no simple playbook to fix this stuff. So that's what I'm writing about. Yeah. And so, you know, what compelled you to actually write the book? Like you've been a prolific writer in the space for years. You've written, I would venture to guess, easily thousands of blog posts and uh, you know research and white papers and all kinds of stuff over your career. Why? Why the book? Why now? Yeah, I have indeed killed a lot of trees. That is a fact. <laughs> for someone who's progressive, I'm a little ashamed of that. But yes, I've been a writer for a long time now, and I had tried to write this book in fits and starts. And I'd written an ebook before and, you know, I was working on an HR book and that was going nowhere. And then I told a friend like, oh, I'm going to write a book on failure. And he looked me in the eye and said, write the book you were meant to write. I, ah, oh, damn it. Because that book was in me. And that book was almost like a letter to myself. Yeah. At that moment when I was at Pfizer falling apart, I knew what I needed to do then, and I just wanted to crystallize those lessons and share them with other people so that other people didn't have to have what was essentially a nervous breakdown at an airport to make the changes they need to make in their lives. Interesting. That's uh, that's very interesting. And actually, really good advice. And I, I will talk a bit more about advice later in the podcast, but I want to I dig right into the book, and I want to talk about Tijuana. Uh, you have always been one of the things that uh, I know I and I think a lot of people admire about you is that you you are an open book. Uh, you are not afraid to, you know, sh speak hard truths. You're not afraid to speak truth to power uh, and you're not afraid to actually, you know, open up and be vulnerable yourself. And, you know, you, you kind of open the book with a story in Tijuana. I, I want you to share what you can of that. But I, I'm curious, like, A, let's talk about 
that trip. Um, but also I'd love to hear like, why was it important for you? Again, somebody who's been so prolific in writing and has been so open to kind of tap into a story that you, you haven't got into publicly before. Yeah. You know, it's funny, Lars, because you only need to be like 2% more vulnerable than the least vulnerable person in the room in order for people to think you're totally authentic. <laughs> Does not take a lot. Right. And throughout my writing career, I had talked about why I had left Pfizer and left HR and used emotional words around it. And people were like, yeah, that's really compelling. But I never trolled. I never told the truth of the story. And I thought, well, if I'm going to actually give people my best advice, the wisdom that had been passed on to me and I pass on to others, I need to tell people why I do the work that I do and why I'm trying to fix work. So, you know, I had been working at Pfizer for a couple of years and I had this job that on paper was supposed to be like every other HR job, innovative, creative, interesting, right? Was supposed to be bold and take risks and all that jargon. And that job was not that. Instead of doing cool things I thought I would be doing, I mostly just laid people off and made sure that nobody sued us, which is the core of every HR job, make sure there are no lawsuits. And it was wearing me down. And I would raise my hand for projects and opportunities to get me out of that work, but I would always find my way back to that work. On top of that, my relationships at work were terrible. And Lars, I don't know if you've ever worked somewhere where you know people don't like you because you're beloved, right? Everybody likes you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but yet yeah, yeah, I have to answer that question, yes, but, but carry on. Yes, yes. I mean, that was my environment at Pfizer. I was just not clicking with the culture and I knew it. I knew it. And yet I kept cashing that paycheck and mostly just feeling sorry for myself. I felt like I was stuck. So one night I was at an airport between flights in the middle of the country. I don't even really remember where, but I had a very brief window for dinner and I was eating Starburst and drinking Pepsi. That was my choice. That's like the business traveler dinner <laughs> of choice, right? right? And I thought, God, I'm just so tired. And I grabbed an Us Weekly magazine. And I started flipping through the pages and I was getting more and more offended by all of these celebrities who were living the life and living the dream while I'm schlepping it across the country to fire people. It was so offensive to me. And on top of that, I just started thinking about Pfizer and how they always put themselves first. And God love them. They're in the business to be in the business tomorrow. The one thing Pfizer does well is sustain itself for years, for decades. And I just thought this is so unfair. I'm so tired. I'm so exhausted. I need a different way. And as I'm flipping through this magazine, I see an article about Courtney Love. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Lars, do you remember Courtney Love? I mean, come on. I'm a, I'm a proud Gen Xer just like you. So yes, yes, I do. <laughs> well, for people who don't know who she is, she is the former lead singer of a band called Hole, but she was married to Kurt Cobain. So we are deep in the Gen X weeds here, right? And the article said that she had gotten her act together by getting weight loss surgery, allegedly, in Mexico. And I thought, hold up. <laughs> I need to learn more about this because everything about Courtney Love's life was going right at the time. So I got on the plane that I needed to connect to, and I, I hauled my heavy Lenovo laptop all the way to the airport hotel where I was staying, and I plugged into the VPN through the phone in the room <laughs> because these are the days before the iPhone, oh, right? Yeah. And I went down this rabbit hole of weight loss surgery 
in Tijuana that was really only accessible to celebrities and people who were morbidly obese. And I was not a celebrity. I was not morbidly obese, but my body had been falling apart. I was overweight. I was exhausted. I had back pain. I'd been yo-yo dieting for years. I wasn't I was on antidepressants that were making me gain weight. And when I started working at Pfizer, I was around 130 pounds. And at that point, I was almost 160 pounds. So that's not huge, but that's a lot when you're five feet tall. I felt like hell. I was not sleeping. I was eating garbage, as evidenced by that airport dinner. And I thought, you know, I want to be a runner. I want to be a rock star. I want to be a writer. I want to do all of these things And the key to this is really my well-being. I'm going to get a lap band like Courtney Love. And from there, Lars, I tell the story of what that journey was like for me. So, yeah, that's what I did. I went to to Tijuana, Mexico, and I got a lap band. Yeah, and so when I read that, obviously, I I know you pretty well. I've you know we've we've had lots of conversations, lots of stories. That was a side of you that I that I hadn't heard, but I but I I appreciated reading it, and it wasn't even so much from a uh, uh, oh I admire your vulnerability or something like that. It was more of just like I felt like I got to know another layer of you, right? And and I think you you know you you write it and you tell that story in a way that is. it's very relatable to readers, whether you've had those struggles yourself or not. Uh, just the idea of like being in a place in your life that is, you know, you weren't happy with, with where, with the direction it was heading and you had dreams and ambitions that you, you felt you were, were out of your reach and you needed to make a drastic change to get there. And so I think that that, that's almost a metaphor for the book. And I kind of get how you open with it because it's the idea of like betting on yourself and focusing on you, I think, is a great just personal an- anecdote that kind of ties into uh, the broader message of the book. You know, take us behind the scenes of writing it. Like, what what were the what were the best and the worst aspects of writing this book? Well, you know, like anything, the best aspects were the day that I got my advance. (laughs) Like, amazing. The the lesson from Tijuana is the lesson from today. Like, money makes stuff happen. You know, when you invest in yourself and you have a little bit of a runway to do cool things, you can do great things. So, loved getting the advance. I loved all of the excitement around the contract, the negotiations. Like, it was all just really great. I think then the reality sinks in that, oh my goodness, I need to deliver on this book. And it grew increasingly more challenging when COVID struck. Yeah. And I had made all of these promises to my publisher, like, I'm going to go out into the world and do a book tour. I'm going to sell to corporate America. I'm going to have all of these opportunities to speak and move merchandise. And now I can't meet those obligations. So that is probably one of the most heartbreaking things because I want not the story of me to get out there, not the story of my shabby career, but the big ideas in the book. And so I am fighting tooth and nail to get those ideas out into the world, not necessarily because I have to meet contractual obligations, but because it's so important to me. This is my life's work to help people fix work by thinking through their own story. And I'm just I'm just so determined to do it. Is there a story that you wish you would have gotten in the book that you didn't, whether it was, you know, space fitting, what, whatever, is there, is there something that, uh, you know, hit the editing floor that, uh, that didn't make the book that, uh, that you wished had? 
Yeah, I wrote 85,000 words, and I think the book is like 55,000. So wow. there are plenty of stories yeah. in there, you know. Part two. But, uh-huh, or revised. <laughs> there's, there, yeah, there's a sequel. That's a sequel right there. Betting on you, part two. I love it. All right. Well, I wrote a whole chapter about negotiating no like really understanding when someone says no to you, what are they saying? And sometimes no is a complete sentence. And sometimes no is an invitation for another way of explaining your point of view or listening even. And so I told the story, I've told millions of stories of being told no, being rejected for offers that being rejected for opportunities where I thought I should get an offer and really how I processed that. And There's this whole cliche thing in the world that, you know, someone says no and one door closes, another door opens. Lars, that's not necessarily true. You know, I mean, sometimes no happens just because somebody doesn't like the look of you. And it's really not about internalizing that. It's about working on your stuff so that when you get told no, it doesn't rock you to your core. And so I have a lot of examples that are just on the cutting floor, cutting room floor of being told no and just getting over it and moving on. So I don't want you to go too deep on this answer because I want people to buy your book and learn it in your book. But if you, yeah. you know, obviously there's, you know, you distill a lot of great wisdom and advice uh, and and feedback and kind of, you know, research that you've gathered uh, in, in kind of framing how people can better invest in themselves. But are there any kind of some key takeaways for listeners and maybe kind of, you know, get, get, you know, whet their appetite of what they're going to get in the book in terms of ways they can begin thinking about investing in, in themselves and betting on themselves. Well, you know, my publisher gave me two rules when I wrote this book, no two by two quadrants, which I've talked about (laughs) and no bullet points. And so the focus of the book is really to focus on story, Yeah, but I do have four underpinnings of my coaching business that are in this book. And I don't mind giving this stuff away because this is, these are ideas that people should know, you know, this is really important to me. So the first idea is that you can't do anything great in this world without really embodying the concept of self-leadership, of individual accountability. There are no victims of circumstance in this world. And I mean, there are, but by and large, we make more choices than we realize. The second underpinning of the book is that well-being, financial, emotional, and physical, carries over greatly to your career. So unless you're doubling down on your well-being, you're never going to have a great career. The third is that nobody of importance has done anything without investing in their learning. So I don't want to throw out an HR nerdy term like continuous learning or lifelong learning, but if you're not learning, you're not growing, and if you're not growing, you're not thriving. And then finally, nobody of substance has done anything in this world without taking risks. So in the book, I teach a risk management methodology called the pre-mortem. And the pre-mortem is just a way to figure out how you're going to fail before you fail and fixing it. And it is the single biggest thing that has changed my life. I, I, that's, I'm looking forward to digging into that. I think everybody uh, who's listening, uh, anybody who does work on any level, I think will benefit from that. Um, let's talk about advice. What's, when you kind of look back, what is the best advice you've received in your career? Yeah. There is a woman I know and love, you know and love. Many of your listeners may know. Her name is Jennifer McClure. And randomly, one night, overlooking the ocean on a balcony, drinking champagne, Jennifer McClure said to me, everybody good gets fired once. 
And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to steal that and put that in my book. And so I did. <laughs> because it's true. If you're someone who's uh, innovative or creative, you're going to butt heads at some point in your career and you're just not going to fit in. And maybe you're not outright fired, but you're made to feel like you need to go. And so whenever someone comes to me in my coaching practice, they're like, oh, I've been fired. I'm so embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm like, don't be. You're in really good company because everybody good gets fired once. I don't know, Lars, what do you think about that? You know, I, uh, having been somebody who has been fired once, certainly I could, uh, self-identify with that statement, but no, I think it, uh, I think it does make a lot of sense. Look, it, very few careers, especially for people that are taking risks and pushing the boundaries are free of friction, uh, mm-hmm. and free of drama and free of firing. Uh, you know, so yeah, I, uh, I like that. She's a, she's a wise person and that's a very wise statement. So I, I actually like that a lot. Well, I want to know the job you've been fired from, and I'll quickly tell you mine. Um, I was, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was a young woman, uh, still in high school, and I applied for a job as a busboy, even though I wasn't a boy, right? So already I'm not qualified, but I decided, all right, I need to get into the restaurant industry. All my friends are making bank, and so this is the way in. And the first night on the job at a German restaurant in Chicago, the owner of the restaurant told me, go get all the ketchup bottles from the booth and booths and bring them back. I'm like, all right. So one by one, I grabbed the ketchup bottles, all 37 of them. <laughs> I put them on a tray and I tried to pick up the tray and take it to the back. And because I was, you know, 15 years old and 89 pounds, a teeny tiny young thing, I dropped the tray of ketchup all over. I mean, it looked like a German horror scene. It was terrible. (laughs) There was ketchup in my hair, ketchup on the ceiling, ketchup on customers, and glass everywhere. And the owner of the restaurant said to me, that is the stupidest thing I've ever seen anybody do. Get the hell out of here. Wow. And all I could do was cry. I went into the bathroom to clean myself off. And I mean, I was just covered. And I thought, I am terrible. I'm stupid. Why did I think that would work? And I left the restaurant and a waiter tracked me down. And he said, kid, hold up. Wait a second. That is the funniest thing I've ever seen anybody (laughs) do in my life. Here's your share of the tips. And he handed me 200 bucks. Wow. I thought, oh my God, I just got fired and I got 200 bucks. This is amazing. So it wasn't too bad, but I have indeed been fired for being a dumbass. That's true. Lars, wow. when did you get fired? Yeah, you know, now I feel I, I should have gone first because my story is nowhere near as, uh, as, as animated as that. I, it was my first job out of college. Uh, I was doing technical recruiting at an agency and uh we were, uh, we were based in LA. It was during the dot-com 1.0 days. We were, uh, as, a, as a market, we went all in on this new programming language called Java. Uh, <laughs> and Java was the darling language of, uh, you know, all the startups that were there. So goto.com, eToys, you know, Net Zero, right? Like old school yeah, tech. Pets.com, yeah, Pets.com. Yeah, oh, Pets.com. Yeah. If you had Noun.com, you were getting like millions of dollars, uh, you know. So yeah, anyway. Um, they, uh, you know, we, we didn't diversify out of Java. So when the bubble burst, uh, our clients and our revenue burst and we went through, mm-hmm. you know, two rounds of layoffs and then, uh, the third one is coming and, uh, I got the call and was, you know, told that my, uh, my services were, were no longer needed. The funny thing, and I agree with you, I don't believe in the statement when one door closes, another door opens no. as a general rule. But in this situation, the interesting part was I was actually, negotiating at that time with a, a client that I did a lot of work with. It was just about to get a big round of funding from Kleiner Perkins to uh, 
revamp their business model. And oh, yeah, a little I, small I, company. Yeah, yeah it's a company called yeah. uh, uh, Yellow Shirt. Terrible name, but pretty cool company. But they uh, they basically, uh, after, you know, I was negotiating a deal through Pencom. And when I got laid off, I emailed the VP of engineering and I was like, hey, I just got fired. Um, but if you're still interested in doing this, I can come on as a consultant and save you a lot of money and just do a direct. And he was like, great, let's do it. So nice, that, that nice. was a scenario, an actual scenario, like one door closing, opening another. And, uh, and yeah, it was funny. But, uh, but it definitely stung. Like getting fired sucks, uh, you know. First time that had happened for me, and and it was uh, it was not pleasant. So no, and a lot of people differentiate between getting fired for cause and getting laid off. But I would say that there's shame either way. For sure, I mean unnecessary shame, but definitely shame. And it's just incumbent on you to remember that your work is not your worth. We don't teach that. We don't live that. We don't have a society built around that. But if you're a human being, which you are, and you wake up and you take a breath, you deserve to feel good about who you are. You deserve to be loved. You deserve health insurance. You deserve to be able to take care of your family. Your work is not your worth. And that is one of the huge underpinnings of my life. Once I realize that, that I deserve love and respect, no matter what I do for a living, the job thing just kind of fell into place. But if you don't feel like you deserve worth, that layoff, that firing because your boss hates you or because there's some stupid nepotism in your office is going to sting. So you got to flip the script, Lars. And that's what this book is all about. Yeah. Well, I think that the whole idea of betting on you is just at its core. It's so important, especially now, like companies don't have allegiances to their employees for the most oh. part. Like obviously COVID hit. We saw tons of layoffs everywhere. And you know, when your focus isn't on, you know, obviously as, as a worker, you know, to be successful in your job, you have to, you know, find ways to add value to the company. But if that should really be secondary in a lot of ways to adding value to yourself, you know, and, and the investments you make in yourself are the ones that will can't be taken away and will continue to pay dividends, unlike any employee agreement. So I think that that it, it's, it's, it's hugely important advice, but especially now, I think, uh, you know, it'll, it empowers employees to kind of take control of their career in a scenario where often they can't control the aspects of what's happening with the company and other things, but they can control how they treat their own career. And, and I'm excited that this book is really a, a, a playbook and a guide and a resource to help all employees do that. What, you know, you. when you, when you think about like the book is out, we're into 2021, there's, um, you know, cautious optimism around uh, mm -hmm. lots of sure. things. We've got vaccines. When you, when you think about this year, like you, you know, 2020, you've put so much of yourself into writing this book, into putting this book together. You know, now we're in 2021, the book is out, you know, it, it's, it's being embraced. You're, you're on kind of, you know, book tours and you're promoting it. How do you operate? Like, do you, before we started recording, we, we had a conversation around a, a, you know, the, the joy of singular focus, which is something neither of us have. And we, we envy people that have, uh, they could, you know, create potato peelers and have singular focus. But for you, like, do you, do you allow 2021 to be a year where you're just fully focused on betting on you? Or are you starting to kind of think about what you might do next? Well, I would never praise the coronavirus for anything because, boy, that thing is terrible. But the coronavirus has really grounded me in a way that I think may have saved my sanity and made me a better writer and a better thinker because 
this year, although I'm not singularly focused per se, I am located in one physical place which is different for me. Yeah. You know, for years I've been flying around, you know, 44 weeks out of the year I'm on the road. It was just too much. It was absolutely hurting my well-being in a way that I didn't quite realize. You know, I thought, "Well, I'm exercising, I'm eating right, I'm taking care of myself, but a lack of sleep, a lack of sanity, a lack of coherent conversations with my husband, my life partner was really starting to wear on us." So when COVID hit, I became grounded and I think I was a better writer for this book, you know, and finishing up the edits. And it may make me better in 2021 because had the coronavirus not struck, I would be out on a book tour and I would be hitting those cities and doing a lot of things. And I think now because I'm home, I can focus on betting on you, but I can also focus on what's next. And for me, what's next is the next book. I mean, I am a writer at my core. And in order to write, you have to sit your butt down and actually do it. And COVID has given me that gift. And so I'm thinking and writing the next book, which is focused on corporate drinking culture, something I can think about now that I'm not really (laughs) in it because I'm not at bars, I'm not at conferences, I'm not at these events. I can really start to think about how alcohol you know, knits us together in a really beautiful way sometimes, but is also super detrimental to the fabric of our society. So yeah, that's what 2021 is for me, really taking the lessons of betting on you and still talking about it, but not feeling like I have to be everywhere on every street corner, opening up, you know, car dealerships and pizza joints and (laughs) HR conferences that I would never normally go to. Um, I can do that virtually. And then I can step back into my real life and be a creator. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. Well, I'm I'm excited about that book as well, but uh, I'm going to focus on this book uh, for now. So betting on you, where can, uh, if listeners uh, are excited about it, they want to find it, what's the best way for them to uh, purchase the book and kind of follow some of your, uh, you know, activities and efforts as you're, uh, as you're supporting the book throughout? So Lars, someone gave me a piece of advice not to pimp out Amazon.com because they have plenty of money. So I tell people to go to bookshop.org because the books you buy there are processed through local indie bookstores. So everybody go to bookshop.org. But beyond that, I am everywhere anybody could find a book. And I also recorded the audiobook. So that's up on Audible and Apple Books. It was an honor to do that. But you know, I have to say, I'm just appreciative of the opportunity to come on your podcast. It is excruciatingly hard to talk about oneself. Like it's super embarrassing, especially when you're a podcaster. I don't want to talk about my life, my lap band, my book, my career lessons. It's just cringeworthy. But you know, Lars, you made it easy. So thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, Lori, I appreciate you coming on. I appreciate you, period. And I'm thrilled for your book. I'm so excited that it's doing so well. And I'm hopeful that uh, the listeners will snatch it up, go to bookshop.org, uh, buy it that way. Bezos is doing okay. He's fine. Uh, we could, yeah, right. he, yeah. He, he's fine. He doesn't yeah. really need those dollars. So yeah, support your local booksellers. And uh, Lori, congrats on everything with the book and uh, all that's come from it. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate you so much, Lars. You're a terrific friend and a great podcaster. And I'm throwing five stars in the rating system your way. Hey, I appreciate the plug. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book, or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. 
And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.